0: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks.
3: And I'm Kalen Huffman-Brower. A report from Kessler Consulting indicates composting is a viable way for Monroe County to reduce the waste it sends to the landfill. Kessler Consultant Peter Engel presented the report to the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District Board on November 8th. According to 2016 estimates, the county generates nearly 120 tons of waste per year Almost 40 percent of that is compostable organic material. Private local collection and composting efforts handle only a fraction of that 40 percent. Ingalls said it doesn't even approach 1,000 tons. But he said the county has the potential to recover as much as 10,000 tons of organic waste. The consultant doesn't see a need for the county to build and operate a composting infrastructure. He said the private sector can handle it, though it may have to be scaled up incrementally.
2: What I want to point out is we talked to the existing composters and we have a sense of that they actually, they have the land, they have the area, they're only using like a little bit of it right now. If they were to expand to what they believe is usable area on their property they could potentially handle that many tons, around 10,000.
3: According to Engel, the vast majority of composting in the U.S. is handled by the private sector. The municipal sector, he said, can provide support through information, technical assistance and grants to help with capital.
2: I would also say that compost market development, that's also the end of this, is ultimately we got to close this loop. We need people to understand how and what are the benefits of compost and what are the right ways to use it. Um, And that's not necessarily something which um, a collector's going to do or a compost facility has the time to do. So again, you know, how do you tie in cooperative extension? You do, um, how do you build um, markets for it by guaranteeing use in public service projects or using it on flower gardens that are here in public places in the, in the community?
3: One of the challenges to composting, Ingalls said, is contamination, which is also a widely discussed issue with recycling.
2: In, as opposed to being in China or at a MRF somewhere else, it's right in your backyard here, is because it's the composters are here and it's going to be contamination at their facilities. That being said, even though it's kind of in your own backyard, it's a complex chain of, of communication. Because you have a worker in a restaurant or who's working at a prep area in a, um, in a grocery store or a commercial kitchen, and they're supposed to be putting things here. And they, they forget that they pull off their gloves and they throw them in the food waste. Or the straws, or the ketchup packets, or the you know all this sort of stuff that ends up being a problem. Or And it gets even more complicated when you get into residential collection. All of this means you've got this complicated communication chain. So when I talk about contamination must be monitored and controlled, it's not just a matter of, you know, checking it out when it gets dumped out at the compost facility. You've got to get that communication all the way back up the supply chain.
3: Ingle told the board the Solid Waste Management District will have to define what is or is not compostable. He said standards vary and pointed to the Biodegradable Products Institute and the Cedar Grove Compostability Index. Board Chair Julie Thomas joined in the discussion.
2: I think it's really important that if you're going to have a community, broad scale community program involving multiple generators and collectors and and that is, you need to have a common set of what is accepted Mm -hmm. compostable material
4: and then work with local restaurants to utilize and, and purchase yes. that material as well. Mm-hmm. I mean that's yeah. that's the other part of it because it's if you're if you're thinking about local food sources as a place where you're getting this kind of packaging then the question is can we move those retailers, those providers forward with using mm-hmm. the purchasing and using the proper yeah. the proper material and then we don't have those issues right. to nearly the same extent.
3: Ingle suggested the district assemble a group of stakeholders and create an action plan. That plan could include pilot programs that work to support existing collection efforts. Area school corporations and other municipal entities could also be engaged. Education, Engel said, will need to play a key role in the district's efforts.
2: Outreach and education, it needs to be clear, consistent, and and relying primarily on pictures, diagrams, and graphics uh, that communicate the message to people.
3: Kessler Consulting's Organic Waste Recovery Analysis is available online at gogreendistrict.com slash publicinfo. Just scroll down to the public documents section.
1: New research into ash trees investigates ways to make them resistant to the deadly emerald ash borer. There are three types of ash trees in Indiana, white, green, and blue. Blue ash is the smallest of the species and has valuable lumber and is less susceptible to the emerald ash borer. Purdue entomology professor Clifford Sadoff says his research indicates that blue ash will survive emerald ash borer attacks unless there are other stressors involved. Sadoff says research conducted by his colleague, Professor Matt Ginzel, supports this finding. They are conducting research to see if the rootstocks of the blue ash can be used to confer resistance to other ash species. Blue ash is widely distributed in Central North America. However, it is not nearly as common as green or white ash in Indiana. It is found mostly on limestone outcroppings. They are distinguished by their square stem. A blue dye can be made from the tree's inner bark, hence the name blue ash. Insecticidal treatments and parasitic wasps may also offer protection from the emerald ash borer. Professor Sadoff says over 100,000 parasitic wasps have been released to date. The wasps protect vulnerable trees long enough for them to reproduce and may help protect ash trees from going extinct.
3: A federal judge recently ruled that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can no longer capture and kill critically endangered red wolves. Only 35 red wolves are left in the wild. They live in and around the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in North Carolina. The court ruling will help protect them from extinction. At one time, red wolves inhabited the entire southeastern U.S., but government-authorized hunting programs nearly eliminated them. A few red wolves were captured and bred in zoos in the late 1970s, In the 1980s, some were released experimentally into the North Carolina Refuge, forming a wild population.
1: On November 13th, over 200 young people held a sit-in at Democratic House Leader Nancy Pelosi's office. The protesters asked her to support a Green New Deal. The plan would entail national action to move away from fossil fuels. In a statement, Pelosi requested that Capitol Police allow the demonstrators to protest. The police arrested 51 of them. The Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats organized the protest. Sunrise Movement is environmentally focused, while Justice Democrats is a reform group. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez participated in the protest. She has previously supported plans for a Green New Deal.
3: Last month, the Trump administration approved the first offshore oil drilling development in federal Arctic waters. However, climate change is threatening the development. The drilling plan requires land-fast sea ice. This kind of ice is attached to the coastline each winter. It would be used as the foundation for artificial islands. The process involves pouring gravel through holes in the ice and down to the seafloor, then building the island structure from the bottom up. The Arctic's unusual warmth has caused ice to form later and break up earlier. That means that the ice isn't thick enough to transport construction materials. Over the last few years, ice thick enough to transport gravel offshore has appeared unusually late in the season.
1: New research published in Nature last week confirms that some of the most destructive U.S. hurricanes of the past decade were made worse by climate change. The report comes from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. It says that hurricanes Katrina, Irma, and Maria had 5 to 10 percent more rain because of global warming. The report also said that future projected warming will give future storms 15 to 25 percent more rain.
3: On Saturday, November 17th, over 6,000 climate activists blocked five bridges in central London. They maintained blockage for several hours. The group Extinction Rebellion organized the demonstration. WFHB reported previously on one of their earlier protests, which blocked traffic outside London's Parliament Square. The civil disobedience group is pressuring the British government to increase climate action, Eighty-two people were arrested. Extinction Rebellion organizers are campaigning for another action next weekend, again in Parliament Square. For WFHB, Kaylin Huffman Brower.
1: And I'm Todd Wicks. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now, it's Get Out and Hike, showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond.
0: This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. This week, I'm with Jill Vance, a naturalist at Monroe Lake, who will be talking to us about a few fine trails just south of Bloomington, Indiana.
4: Uh, State Recreation Area on Monroe Lake has three different trails that people can walk on it. Our easiest trail is the Tree Trek Trail. Uh, that's a pretty short trail, just about a quarter mile in length. That's a good one for people with kids who are just looking uh, for an easy walk. It's a quarter mile, to half a mile, uh, very easy. We also have a longer trail that's my personal favorite uh, out at Payne Town, and that's the Bluebird Trail. That one gives you a little bit more of a, some hill climbs involved, uh, uh, does get into some little prettier areas, though. Go climbing through some old fields and up to some hilltops. Uh, that's about one and a quarter miles in length. Uh, probably not one that I'd recommend for very young children, but uh, certainly age you know 10 and up could handle that, along with adults, without a big problem. Uh, and then we also have the Whitetail Trail at, um, at Payne Town. And this one is a one-way trail or an out-and-back, and it connects um, the trailhead inside the park with our trail. Trailhead on the edge of the park, up behind the property office, and that's a way that people can link from our trails into the Hoosier National Forest uh, Pate Hollow Trail, which shares a trailhead up by our property office, and it's a one-mile trail that uh, connects the two systems. Uh, it's one more moderate, uh, but it does have some hi- a few kill climbs, uh, a little bit of some steep ravines involved with it. But it's a good one for people who want to extend their hikes by uh, connecting into the pay hollow system in the hoosier thank you jill is there a fee for to come into the park uh, Paint town does charge an entrance fee during the summer and the fall months um, and in the late spring as well uh, we are free during the winter uh, so basically right around the beginning of november until usually sometime around mid-march uh, there's no feed in or Paint town and you can come on in and check out the trails
0: okay Joe, how could people find the park? Is there a website they could go to?
4: Absolutely. Um, I will give you the shortcut URL because sometimes it can be a bit of a challenge to navigate through all the menu selections. If you just go to tinyurl.com slash Monroe Lake, that will take you right directly to our page, and you can download a copy of our trail map right there.
0: All right. Thanks a lot.
3: This report out by Purdue University's Climate Research Center indicates Indiana's tourism industry will need to be resilient in the face of climate change. That means adapting to hotter summers, rainier springs, and more storm events. In today's eco-feature, WFHB's Norm Hawley talks with the report's lead author to learn more.
5: This is Norm Hawley for WFHB, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Day. He's a professor at Purdue University, and he participated as a lead author in the most recent issuance from the Climate Lab, and that is tourism and recreation in a warmer Indiana. So, uh, Dr. Dave, what do you anticipate seeing in regard to tourism, and how well is the tourist industry preparing for the changes that we expect?
6: So that's, a, that's two big questions. You know, tourism is uh, such an important industry for the whole of the United States, and it's such an important industry for Indiana. And quite often when we get, you know, so um, focused on agriculture and manufacturing that we see every day, we forget about that uh, invisible industry that tourism is. But tourism for the state um, represents sort of almost 80 million, uh, 79 million visitors and um, supports directly or indirectly 242,000 Hoosier jobs. So it's a big deal for us. Now, there's nothing in the report that says that tourism in Indiana is going to stop as a result of climate change. It's certainly not the case at all. But we know that some of our tourism experiences, some of the visitor experiences that we have, will change as we move into the century. And so, you know, the message in this uh, report is that uh, tourism businesses, you know, retail organizations that rely on visitors, uh, attractions, hotels, need to be just watching what those changes are and being aware of the changes that are coming. There's also a message in there that we need to be building our resilience. Uh, What I mean by that is that. One, as these changes happen, you know, tourism organizations are very adaptive. And, you know, we're talking about a long period of time in which we've got time to change. Um, as we get into the into the middle of the century, we're going to see much hotter summers. You can imagine Indiana having um, uh, weather in the middle of summer that's a little bit more like Georgia is now. And our industry needs to sort of adapt. Now, some of that adaption might be, you know, putting trade up in outdoor areas or um, increasing the air conditioning. These are little things that we need to be preparing for and thinking about as we go forward. The other part of the the process, in in addition to being aware and adapting, is building our resilience. Now, Indiana already is in a place that uh, uh, suffers from um, tornadoes, uh, small businesses need to be, uh, you know, it's good practice for a small business to have a disaster plan. Um, we're already in a place that, you know, sort of suffers from, you know, the occasional flood. And we know as climate change increases during the course of the the um, century, that we're going to see more flooding, particularly in spring, spring and winter. We're going to see more extended heat waves during the middle of summer um, and we may see more storms so you know an industry that is resilient and and adaptive to changes like that means that small businesses need to stop and they need to dust off their disaster plan um, so that uh, you know if something untoward were to happen um, they'd be ready to to weather through that storm Research shows that we're very adaptive. We can change, but um, small businesses and tourism businesses often are not very resilient. If they're hit by a flood or if they're hit by uh, some other disaster, it's hard for them to bounce back. And so preparing for that is an important takeout um, from this report. And quite frankly, it's just good business sense. Having your um, you know your risk assessment and your disaster plan are uh, ready to go uh, is true is good good advice for today and good advice for the future.
5: So, if the summers are hotter and drier, I can imagine that uh, some of the reservoirs, like Lake Monroe, which has huge amount of boat traffic on particularly on the weekends might drop by three feet or so, or, you know, even perhaps more, would that negatively impact tourism?
6: Yeah, so that's a good example. You know, most tourism businesses um, uh, adapt pretty quickly. Um, But there are places where, you know, infrastructure, you know, things like uh, moorings and so forth um, are built and they're built, you know, with a 10 and 20 year time horizon. And those organizations need to be thinking about, you know, what is going to be the impact. So if the water level is going to lower, how am I going to manage those changes? Um, and I'm not saying, and please don't take from this that I'm saying that the, the lake is going to, to lower. I, I'm not an expert in that. Um, I can tell you that, um, you know, Lake Michigan, the water levels have been rising. And that's had an impact on moorings and, uh, you know, all through Michigan. And, uh, you know, it's changing the, the coastline up there. And we need to respond to those sorts of things. So, you know, this is where, you know, all of the people who are involved in tourism, and some of them don't even realize they're involved in tourism. They're, they're you know, they see themselves in, in different roles, but they have an impact on how the visitor economy works. And we need to be thinking about what, what is coming down the track.
5: Uh, let me just touch on a recreation issue. So let's uh, let's imagine summer down here in Bloomington. We have, you know, excellent trails. Uh, so here it is, July, and it's 100 degrees. What's that going to do on hiking possibilities in this area?
6: So what I would say to you is that we'll still be doing the same sorts of things. We might not be doing them at the same time. You know, it may be that... Uh, you know, as we move into October and November, it's more pleasant for us to be doing some of these activities outside. Um, In tourism, we have this sweet spot. Uh, Well, it's mild weather and it's, you know, around between 65 and 85 degrees. And that mild weather is great for most outdoor activities. Now, we actually lose some of our mild weather um, as the temperature changes and the climate changes. It starts earlier in the year. There's actually mild days in January even, um, and it, you know, by the end of the century, and there's mild um, time uh, at the end of the year as well. So you know, it may be if I love to walk that I avoid doing it in the, in the hottest times of the year and I start to do it later in the year or earlier. The same is true for things like antiquing and shopping. Right? Um, it may be more pleasant to to visit a place like Nashville later in the season. Um, and so, you know, I'm not I'm not predicting that that's going to be the case. But I would say to the to the businesses there, perhaps your your season will extend. It will get
5: longer. Is there an easy way that uh, our listeners can access that report without giving a long uh, html
6: the best way to find this is to go to the indiana climate change impact assessment uh tourism and if you google that the report will come up
5: okay thank you very much for the interview okay thank you sir cheers
1: Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And it's time for In Nature, written and recorded by EcoReport contributors, past and present.
3: This is In Nature. Beech,
0: Fagus grandifolia, is a common tree in our deciduous forests. In this area, the climax forest consists of beech and sugar maple, two trees that germinate well in dense shade. The beech prefers rich, well-drained soils. It can live for three to 400 years and often reaches 80 feet in height, with a diameter in excess of three feet. The canopy is wide and spreading, leaving open spaces well-shaded and park-like underneath. Seedlings grow from the shallow roots and can create dense thickets of young trees, among more mature ones. The beech has a distinctive thin gray bark that entices people to carve their names. It is easily scarred, and disease can enter these wounds and shorten the tree's life. The tree will often hold onto its leaves during the winter and can be easily spotted in the woods. The leaf bud is long, and thin and opens out to a thin elliptical shaped leaf with parallel veins and coarse teeth. They decompose slowly and thus make a deep layer of duff on the forest floor. The separate male and female flowers are small and inconspicuous and bloom when the leaves are unfolding. Pollen from the male flower is blown by the wind onto the female flower, eventually forming a small nut encased in a spiny husk. Their abundant production of nuts every two or three years provides food for many animals of the forest, including squirrels, chipmunks, and raccoons. Humans, too, enjoy the sweet nut. It is also a wonderful denning tree, since it forms cavities that can be used by many
3: animals. You've been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area... There will be a full moon hike Mm -hmm. at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, November 23rd to celebrate the beaver or frosty moon. Come out and see the world through the eyes of nocturnal creatures. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center.
1: Meet at the Nature Center at Brown County State Park on Sunday, November 25th at 2 p.m. to learn about endangered species in Brown County and the state of Indiana.
3: Take a hike through Donaldson's Cave on Sunday, November 25th from 1 to 2 p.m. at Spring Mill State Park. Donaldson's Cave is considered Indiana's most beautiful cave. Meet at the Spring Mill Inn. You will also learn about Spring Mill's Scottish heritage.
1: The Indiana DNR will host a Grassland Habitat Workshop on Thursday, November 29th. It will be at the 2750 South Pleasant Grove in Lyons, Indiana, and run from 3 to 6 p.m. Learn how to improve your property for grassland wildlife. To register, contact Emily Jacob at 812-699-0264.
3: Indigo Birding Nature Tours is offering an overnight trip to the Jasper-Pulaski Fish and Wildlife Area in northwest Indiana on Thursday, November 29th, and Friday, November 30th. The trip will be to view Sandhill Cranes. To register and for more information, go to indigobirding.com or contact David Rupp at 812 679 8978.
1: that wraps up our show for this week. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com.
3: This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike.
1: Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our interim producer is Jan Walker, and executive producer is Wes Martin.
3: Tune in on Thursdays at 11:30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For Wfhb, I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower,
1: and I'm Todd Wicks. For all of us here at the station, happy Thanksgiving.
3: And this is Eco Report.
0: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
5: directly to the
2: Eco Report staff.
0: The email address is
2: earth at wfhb.org.
0: That's earth at wfhb.org.